Welcome to Econ Talk, coming to you from the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of George Mason University. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any comments or feedback for us here at Econ Talk, please send me an email at roberts at gmu.edu. You can find more Econ Talk at www.econtalk.org, along with readings and links related to this podcast. My guest today is Richard Epstein, the James Parker Hall Distinguished Service Professor of Law at the University of Chicago, and he's also the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. He's the author of numerous books and articles. His latest book is titled How Progressives Rewrote the Constitution, published by the Cato Institute earlier this year. And he recently had a piece in the Wall Street Journal on organ donation that is the subject of our conversation today. Richard, welcome to Econ Talk. Oh, it's very nice to be here. What's the current situation for someone who wants a kidney transplant? How's that work? Um, right now, it's a very complicated set of procedures, but uh, we believe in treating uh, kidneys as an item. This is nationally, not me, uh, which is going to be allocated by Q. So what you have to do is to get online and wait your turn. Uh, it's even more complicated than that because there's more than one line and there are ways to bust you up to the top. Uh, that is, right now, the kidney lines tend to be local, and sometimes there's a substantial variation between people who live in Dallas on one hand or Fort Worth on the other, where the difference in the weight can be as much as a year or more. Uh, right now, the average recipient has to wait four years to get a kidney, and by the time many of the people receive it, uh, it's, they're too old for it to do much good. And unfortunately, along the way, many people are pulled from the list, which is another one of the mysteries of this field, and many die while on it. On average, 18 people per day on the kidney list die, and on average, probably the list gets about five or 6,000 longer per year. I think that's the number. It may be a few less, but it's clear that these cues are growing, not shrinking. The people who are, who are dying, how old are they typically? Do we have an idea? Um, it varies all over the lot, but most people who are on the, uh, on the kidney situation usually have complications with some other disease like diabetes, and so that will tend to put most of them in their late 50s, 60s, and 70s. But these are not extremely elderly people about to die anyway. These kidneys that they're not getting make a big difference. They oh, could yeah. Live, I mean, live I, I have not done these calculations, but I think it's, it's quite likely that you can say that uh, a kidney is a rather precious commodity and that it can add, if it's in good shape, to a recipient who's in good shape, 15 years or more to expected life. Uh, the most conspicuous illustration of this is uh, Sally Saitel, who's a fellow with the American Enterprise Institute, who received a live kidney donation from a friend, Virginia Pastrell. Sally, I think, is just under 50. Without that kidney, she probably would have lived only four or five years at most in terrible dialysis. With it, uh, she probably has 20 or 25 years, of course, to a normal lifespan. And the people who are waiting online, in the queue, as, as you call it, they're not literally waiting, but they're in a, on a paper queue. Yep. And I assume they're on dialysis or other uh, to keep them going in the meanwhile. Um, some people get on before they need to go on dialysis. Most people are on dialysis, and it's a pretty gruesome fate. There was another story in the Wall Street Journal which indicated that as many as 20% of people just voluntarily give up on it because they can't bear the 30 or so hours a week, five sets, three or four sessions a week that it takes. And you never get yourself back to normal. It's a delusion to think that dialysis it's just a matter of time. You feel punk and exhausted even when you're not on the machine because it's a rather poor substitute for one well-functioning kidney. Has dialysis gotten less expensive in recent years? Is... Oh, it's a very expensive process. It's a hundred grand a year or something like that. It's a big program. I don't know how many billions of dollars the uh, in-state 
renal disease program does, but it's 10 or $15 billion. It's a big number. Um, and uh, there's a very long queue. And there's also, I mean, thank God, there's a fairly active, I, I wouldn't say market, but certainly set of activities in which we probably have around 14,000 kidney transplants per year. Uh, about a little more than half of those are cadaveric, that is from dead people, and about 40 to 45% are from individuals who are alive in various kinds of uh, swap arrangements, some of which are, are clearly within family, others which are, in fact, for reasons of blood compatibility across couples, which gives rise to a very well-known Hobbesian assurance problem, which is handled in a very clever way, if you want to describe that to you. Yeah, go ahead. Better. Tell us about that. Yeah, the, the basic problem, and I'll just give you the simplest of illustrations first, and then you could go to some of the more compound ones after as follows. Suppose you have uh, a wife who needs a kidney, and she's type A and her husband is type B. Uh, he's willing to donate to her but cannot because the incompatible blood types makes this an impossible match. Then there's another couple, and let's suppose this husband to give to his wife, and uh, it turns out that he's A and she's B. What you could do is you could cross-match it. You could have the B husband give to the B wife and the A husband give to the A wife, and you get two donations instead of none. Uh, but then you figure out how do you do this. Well, the first question you have to ask is do you do it sequentially? Uh, first one couple, then the other. And the reason I refer to this as a Hobbesian assurance problem is that the one thing we know about the law of contract is it doesn't give you specific performance. So if one couple went through it, uh, the second mm. one would have every incentive to renege. Uh-huh. So the way they solved this problem is they quite literally put people under the knife simultaneously so that there could be nobody who could pull out. So they have radio contact between uh, operating rooms to make sure that there's no slippage in the joints. And I'm all in favor of this. Um, it essentially allows you to get two people alive instead of none. There is a legal objection that you're not allowed to trade or sell organs for valuable considerations, but the folks who run the kidney establishment, which is an a world unto itself has managed to delude or persuade themselves that these swaps are, in fact, pure altruism instead of altruism within family and swaps across families. And, you know, I don't care about the linguistics at this point. I think it's baloney, but I think the really important thing is that the kidneys get transferred. So in the current world, you cannot uh, buy a kidney legally in the United States or sell one, but there is this strange sub-market you're talking about it's a, where... It's a market for barter. Where a person, but and not just that. You, you gave the example earlier earlier of Virginia Postrel donating a kidney to. Uh, and then there's the pure friendship altruist market. So you can designate a kidney. Um, yes, these are called directed donations. Oh, uh, this is you know to say anything categorical, Russ, in this area is always dangerous. <laughs> but essentially, there is no statutory objection to this. There is a very long debate inside the so-called ethical, and I use the words in quotes, community dealing with kidneys, as to whether or not is it appropriate for somebody to designate a kidney to a total stranger or even to somebody not in his family group. Uh, The kidney people treat the list as though it's a sacred artifact and therefore think that any effort at designation is an effort to subvert the list and to circumvent some natural priority, one that they have created. So there's some transplant centers, for example, that will not allow anonymous matches to be done in their facilities. I think that Israel and Boston is one such place. Uh, and, and what happens under those circumstances is since the cash market is precluded, since there are incredible shortages, just the usual rules of supply and demand, supply at zero prices low, demand at zero prices very high, everybody turns out to wait, there are these facilities 
MatchingDonor.com is perhaps the most well-known of them. And what takes place on this is that people post their pictures and their biographies, and they try to induce strangers to give them a kidney. And there's some institutions that say, can't do this. Either it's a ruse for a fraudulent cash payment underneath the table, or in effect, there's no true altruism in this particular case. And so that what we have to do is to tell the person who would give to Miss X, oh, you can't give to her, but if you give to an anonymous donee, that's just perfectly fine. Uh, it's such a bizarre world that you get into, precisely because the price mechanisms creates persistent shortages, and then in accordance with just perfectly standard economic theory, whenever there's a shortage, there's a queue. Whenever there's a queue, there are efforts by people to sort of maneuver themselves to the head of it. Well, let's talk about the alternative. Uh, what, what would you prefer to this current Byzantine system? Where well, I mean, uh, first of all, I'd, I'd experiment with anything. Uh, when one sees the amount of gratuitous suffering that takes place, uh, you really want to focus in order to find some way to increase the supply. The most obvious way to do it is to have a straight market in which you allow people to bid up the price and to increase the supply of organs. This is going to be a funny market in one sense, even if it's completely unregulated, because there are huge charitable and, and generous motives that are always working in the background. And the way in which this happens, for example, is there are lots of people, for example, who will give to hospitals to take care of the ill. There will be many foundations or organizations, I predict, which would create separate kidney funds, um, which would try to help people without means in order to uh, allow them to participate in this market. So I think that what will happen is, strangely enough, you'll get more rather than less charity. There are lots of people like myself who are really, you know, too old to give a kidney or have had some kind of illness which makes it unwise for them to do so. Uh, but whereas it may only be that a tiny fraction of the population is willing to give kidneys, I think you'd find a rather larger fraction of the population uh, that would be willing to give cash to allow people to purchase kidneys. And in a voluntary market, there is nothing which precludes charitable translations operating in tandem with or side-by-side side with or substituting for various kinds of straight outright arm's length bargains. And I think all of these institutions would start to emerge. I think the supply would start to increase. I think that the demand would probably shrink a little, but, you know, generally speaking, you'll have fewer demanders at a positive price than you will at a zero price. But the queues will tend to disappear. Uh, the public savings will be enormous because dialysis is enormously expensive, and you would be able to save those funds. In addition, the people who receive these, ki these kidneys will lead much more productive lives, which means that they'll contribute to the economy and to the tax base which it supports. Um, I don't see any real fundamental difficulty with trying this. Uh, there are lots of people who have objections to it. If you'd like, I'll go over some of them. Yeah, let's talk, about, let's talk about some of those objections. Sure. And, I mean, well, you know, the first objection, for example, in many cases, is that the so-called market in kidneys will take advantage of vulnerable populations. Sure. And I think there's several responses you could make to that. I mean, the first one is, if you really thought this was a matter of vulnerability, you could say the only people who could give kidneys are those who have college degrees or have incomes of $50,000 or whatever it is and, and knock out the poor. You mean uh, you that's one of these usual inversions that we see in which it turns out that um, poor people are therefore going to be denied the opportunities which will be let open to rich people, which is generally speaking not the wisest thing in the world to do. In addition, there's an enormous amount of self-selection in this market. Uh, buying a kidney from somebody is not just buying any old thing. You take a kidney which is diseased, which has uh, been ravaged by alcohol or by drugs, and uh, you're buying yourself a death sentence. 
so that I think for the most part, people will be very choosy about the organs they use. And in the Wall Street Journal column that I referred to earlier, or that you referred to earlier, I mentioned that the sort of external check you might want to use is to say that the kidneys that are purchased have to go through the same kinds of tests and examinations that kidneys are donated have to go through. And if you did that, if the one set of kidneys is safe to use, then the others would be. In fact, it's really perverse in this regard. Uh, when I testified about this uh, before the President's Council on Bioethics, I heard previous to my speech, I talked by an ethicist named Robert Beecher, and what he suggested was that the shortage is now so acute that maybe we ought to tell people, hey, you can get a kidney, we know it's disease, we know that somebody may have hepatitis or AIDS, but we think it's okay, take your chances. Um, it's kind of ironic <laughs> because the, one of the responses you get to the shortage is a real compromise in quality with respect to the kidneys that are provided. So that kidneys that are more and more marginal are being pressed into use. And, you know, that would not take place in any kind of a sale market. I don't believe that anybody could sell a disease kidney. Uh, I think the supply of healthy kidneys would start to drive it out. How many would you need? I guess it's a fair question. Uh, right now there are about 94,000 people sitting on the kidney waiting list. Uh, I don't know if all of them would make, would make suitable donees or be willing to pay or get somebody to pay for them. Uh, you probably would need a burst to get rid of the backlog, but after that, you'd probably have to find, oh, I don't know, maybe 10,000 kidneys a year to cover the shortfall and have to pay perhaps more money for the kidneys that are already donated, but that's just a transfer payment. I could care less one way or another about it. In steady state, uh, right now we probably need, I don't know, 25,000, 30,000 kidneys per year. Uh, the number might change if the market's available because people who put off going on dialysis might come on, but if you're talking about a population nationally of 300 million, that means that every year there are probably, you know, 6 million people who reach the age of donation and new entries into the market. I think that with a suitable price system, you could probably find 10,000 people who'd be willing to donate. The risks of the donors are not trivial. That's why you don't get it voluntarily, but the death rate is about 3 in 10,000, and the complication rate is somewhat higher than that. Uh, the more you do with this stuff, the better it gets. So those numbers are only going to go down. They're not going to go up. And in many cases, my guess is that the numbers will actually be lower because if you get a purchase population, uh, you're probably going to get a healthier stock giving than you will in the family situations where a husband or a wife may give a kidney to a child even though he or she may not be the perfect donor. Um, do after all, you're willing to take a slightly greater chance for your own kid than you might be prepared to do for money. So I think that this thing would sort itself out against the vulnerability charges. There are aesthetic charges, which I find just crazy. Yeah, let's um, talk about those. Um, for example, the commodification. Says, well, the reason we don't allow these things is we're refining a certain degree of revulsion to having these sorts of transactions. Well, frankly, I do find them very unnatural. Uh, our body's defenses are made to make sure that no physical invasion takes place. That's why we need anesthesia. But, you know, I find things a lot more repellent than uh, selling kidneys. I find having people die at very high rates a rather tragic and awful situation. I think human suffering is an awful situation. And essentially what the market says is this. Um, you have huge amounts of suffering. I would have a little amount of suffering if I helped you. A little cash payment will make me better off by making me richer in exchange for the risk that I take. And it will make you a lot better off by adding years. And remember, uh, the usual hedonic calculations would put sort of an individual's life at, I don't know, $100,000, $250,000 a year as a conservative.
conservative estimate. I mean, these are big numbers uh, relative to everything that goes on. And you could finance the whole program out of the savings of dialysis if you really wanted to go in that direction. So well, what the you critics, have is this. The critics argue that, that the commodification of the body, that the somehow the using your organs as a source of income, which, of course, is something we do all the time with our eyesight and our brains. We, we use our organs for income yeah. all the time. They do it for blood and for sperm, and, for, and women do it for aches. But somehow parting with it permanently, I'll, although I have to mention one of my all-time favorite tabloid headlines was kidney donor wants it back. But in general, you part with it forever. So somehow this is considered by the critics a slippery slope. Not quite sure where that slope leads. Do you have any idea what they're worried about? Yeah, um, commodification is one of those mysterious things. Uh, uh, what they are worried about is that the people who engage in these transactions will somehow or other will, will lose respect for persons as persons. And so instead of thinking them as holders of rights, we will start to think of them as mere collections of organs that other people can use at their free will and pleasure. Now that would be certainly true if in fact what you did is you went on a queue on the Long Island Railroad and picked somebody out and say, hey, you're the organ donor of the week and we're going to dismember you. But you've got to get their consent, and the way in which markets always work is you only get consent by treating people with respect. Um, it would be an absolute delusion and mistake to think that in a market which is this fraught with emotion, um, a kind of cold hostility uh, would be uh, sufficient to wean somebody over to it. We do have markets, for example, a gray market in babies, uh, in which couples try to get adoptions through private agencies or through obstetricians who have access to women who love their children but don't want to keep them at home. And you watch the way that market works. You know, people prepare these video shows of themselves, their household, their daily lives. They go through interviews. They do all sorts of things. And it's not a question of just putting somebody out to the person with the highest bid. If you care about what's going to happen, there's a lot of affection and and emotion, these things, and, and all of this stuff really matters, and it would show. And indeed, you know, we know right now that communities get together to um, finance uh, difficult and expensive operations for individuals within them who get hurt, and the same thing would start to happen here. It, it, it's a complete lack of imagination to assume that everybody's going to be selfish and boorish because you allow these transactions to take place. Uh, what will happen is there's some people who will be indifferent and they'll stay on the sidelines and there'll be other people who care and, and they'll come in and they'll contribute in a relatively responsible way. Um, I can't believe that anybody would think that uh, people would be commodified in, in the sense of being treated as though they were a bunch of bricks and stones by virtue of this. Uh, we had the same argument made, for example, by Leon Cass with respect to in vitro fertilization 25 years ago that children who are created in test tubes won't be loved by their parents. I think it has proved to be utterly groundless. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, social, cultural issue for non-economists and, and lots of other folks um, that somehow when money gets involved, the whole transaction becomes tainted. Mm-hmm. That everything is better if we served our fellow human beings purely out of love, which is a lovely idea for a family. But it, it works, just doesn't work with a series of large, works, complex societies. Yeah, it works very poorly. Uh, uh, you what, think of Adam Smith. It's not from the benevolence of the butcher or the baker that we expect our bread or meat, right? And yet, and yet, somehow people would—they do see this um, non-monetary world as an ideal. And I, it's an interesting challenge for us as, as economists and. Lawyers who feel uh, law professors who feel otherwise to um, 
make that case. I think it's it's an interesting challenge culturally. Yeah, well, I agree. I mean, I think, as I said earlier on, a lot of this misapprehension comes from the fact that people don't understand the way markets work. Uh, you go back to the beginnings of laissez-faire in the late 19th century. Uh, this was the period in which voluntary donations, creation of great hospitals and universities was the norm. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a very powerful cultural element in all of these things, which say that those who have benefited enormously from the market should give back voluntarily to the communities from which they receive much of their gain. And it's not just idle chatter. I mean, you go back and you watch what happened, and that's exactly what did take place. People did go and give back to the communities. I mean, one of the things I always like to do is to ask people, you know, who Mr. Stanford was. Hmm. It's not the name of a farm. It's the name of a guy who gave a huge gift after the death of his son. Or who Mr. Harvard was, or Mr. Yale was, or Mr. Brown was. These are all people who created these great institutions. Or I say to somebody, you've been treated as Sloan Kettering. Do you know who Sloan is? Do you know who Kettering is? And, you know, those are the two guys who founded uh, General Motors back in the 1920s. How awkward. What? How awkward. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it seems to me that the, the way in which you do this is, is you caricature a market uh, so as to operate in, in sort of relentlessly selfless ways and thereby misunderstand what they're about. The reason market people worry about selfishness is in the case where people are most egotistic and you get a voluntary exchange, you get a social improvement. Both sides are better off. But it doesn't say that everybody has to operate out of that particular motivation. I mean, we all know that motivations are highly mixed, and I think the clear thing is the moment you get to matters of marriage, matters of life and death, and matters of children, uh, we get lots of mixed emotions. We do create commodities in many cases, and it's extremely wise that we do so. All of capital markets depends upon commodification. Uh, nobody can sit out there and organize a market in, in used bolts and in rusty nails. So what you do is you put all the assets into a corporation, create fungible shares, which have no particular subjective value, and those things can be freely traded in a way that the assets that they represent cannot if you try to trade them piecemeal. So in that sense, commodification just leads to efficient markets. So, I mean, in the areas where you see commodification, it's wonderful. Exactly yeah. what we want. No, if we people, didn't have number four, we, we wouldn't know how to organize a weed exchange. <laughs> now, I think people have trouble with that mixed motive idea. They, they, um, if you ask a doctor uh, why he or she is in medicine, the answer is going to be to serve people, and which is fine. I think that is part of the reason. And if it didn't, yeah, if it didn't pay, means, right? I mean, if it didn't pay, they pro- most of them would be doing something else, or many of them at least. So there's nothing wrong to me of having two motives monetary and whatever else you want to call it, conscience, um, mm-hmm. virtue, etc. Um, and yet I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with that. L- let me uh, let me turn to one of your critics, um, uh, who Atul uh, uh, Gawanda, medical doctor, who who said the following. Oh, this is 1998? Yeah. yeah Pulled it up off the yeah. web. He's an interesting guy. He says – yeah, he is an interesting guy. He says, my opposition – his opposition to a market – My opposition stems from exposure to ordinary people as they make decisions about whether to undergo surgery, to take their medicines, and so on. Libertarians have great faith that people nearly always make rational choices and that having more choices can't be bad. But any doctor can tell you that's not true. In medicine, you come to realize how unreliable the faculty of reasoning is and how susceptible it is to subtle forms of exploitation. Do you worry about that at all in this market? Oh, absolutely, but it doesn't cut that way he thinks it does. Look, I mean, put it the same way. That's an argument against allowing voluntary donations. 
people are erratic. They don't have consistent preferences. They go up, they go down. They don't know what's understanding well, I, about I have it. To, I have to tell you that I had a friend, a uh, uh, guest uh, over for lunch one day who, who told me exactly that, that uh, she counsels folks often against voluntarily donating because um, it's risky. And they may not be in their right mind. And I, I was, I have to confess, I was horrified at this. Uh, and another guest suggested that it was a, perhaps a violation of the Hippocratic Oath for a doctor to remove a kidney from a patient to give it to another. And I said, well, then we ought to get rid of the Hippocratic Oath. Yeah, um, they all have these very strong, odd objections. Uh, but I think, you know, Atul is correct and, and, and about the fact of the danger. But again, he misses, I think, the reply is, Whenever you enter into delicate transactions, but they're legal, what you do is you get advice before you do it. And so what happened is, quite naturally, independent of any government regulation, you announced that you can have these exchanges. Somebody would put themselves out as an organ donor or an organ seller consultant, and you could go to them and get some sort of an evaluation as to whether or not you're a suitable donor and what you could expect by going through the things. You'd get blog sites which would start to get information. And also I think he was wrong for another reason. Uh, the donor is somebody who's not in any immediate physical peril or danger of life. He can sit down there and take as long or as short as he wants. It's not like somebody who's feeling great pain in one part of his body is afraid of dying and so forth. Yeah, so I, that the populations you're talking about are actually somewhat different. Well, I guess and the my argument guess is that you get a higher degree of rationality by going to a healthy population and asking whether or not you'd want to take $50,000 for an organ than you would in trying to deal with ordinary surgeries. But he did not take into account the differences in conditions between the donors on the one hand and the uh, sick population on the other. So yeah, I, I think that the arguments that he makes are true, but like every true argument, it's an argument for caution. It's not an argument for a ban. Wouldn't the argument, though, be that a person in, say, desperate financial straits might make an irrational decision? Uh, they might. And as I said, you know, if that's the situation... Uh, you could easily imagine rules um, that would limit the people to having incomes above a certain level making donations. But let me put it to you this way. We don't know the answer to those questions in part because we've never even tried anything remotely like this kind of an experiment. And if you did try this kind of an experiment and you saw some kind of abuses, you would then have some degree of information as to what's going on. That's the first point. The second point is, this is only a series of objections with respect to live transfers. Uh, there are the cadaveric transfers. And, you know, under these circumstances, you could easily imagine a situation where the, the payment is made to somebody's estate under, the, under these circumstances. There are some risks there that, you know, somebody would hasten the death in order to harvest the organs. Uh, but I think that those are relatively minor and that certain safeguards could be. That's a lovely thought. It. And, and the point is, one would be willing to try. Uh, to give you another approach, which I don't like, but which I'd accept is Lloyd Cohen and Henry Hansman. Each said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll have the state buy the organs at some kind of a fixed price, so you get rid of bidding, and then we'll take those organs and give them to people on the current United Network of Organ Sharing, as it is called, um, the queues that they put up in order to increase the supply without altering the way in which the demand goes. I mean, try something. And, and what was so horrifying about the um, uh, report from the Institute of Medicine is that they not only opposed having any financial incentives, they opposed any and all forms of experimentation. And it was that which prompted me to write this um, letter uh, or this column for the Wall Street Journal um, in, in dealing on this subject. Well, and, not to be I too mean, cynical. I can't believe what's going on. Um, 
there was a letter by a man named Charles Fruta, who was a himself an organ recipient, and I have to say it was one of the most astonishing letters that I ever read, and, and I did write a reply to it um, uh, in the Wall Street Journal in a letter. And this man is the head of the National Kidney Foundation, so I regard this as frightening, in which his observation was, well, we can't allow a market because if we have a market, then the distribution of kidneys will be, in effect, no better than the distribution of oil and gas, or gasoline, I think is what he said. Yeah, so I saw what? that. So it's the obvious answer. If you want to find out why they're snap loose in the distribution of gasoline, look to various forms of price controls and you'll get your answer. I mean, it's not the market that fails in those circumstances. It's the regulatory overlay and the huge rhetoric about gouging that does it. Lloyd Cohen, who's on your faculty, quipped, um, what you really need is to have a united network of gasoline sharing in order to make sure that we solve this problem by requiring that all gasoline be sold at zero price. Yeah, let's let people line up. Uh, let's go back to the 70s, and instead of just having price controls at the level they were at, let's put them at zero, and we can really see some lines and some social disruption. Yeah. Uh, it's a kind of a horrible idea. Yeah, no, I mean, so, uh, that, that, by the way, I mean, if people are interested in this, just as we were talking, on my screen popped up a new blog site, which I have contributed to from time to time, called Organomics which is obviously the economics of organs, run by a man named Heaney. Um, and um, they put various things up, and the last thing, as I opened it up, was a uh, copy of the letter that I sent to the Wall Street Journal last week in response to Mr. Fruit's uh, letter to the uh, Wall Street Journal protesting my rather, oh, how shall we say, uh, coarse and vulgar views with respect to this issue. You heartless man, you. Uh, we'll put a link up to that uh, organomics website. Uh, sure, you should. I mean, you know, uh, uh, it, this is a very important issue. Fortunately, I have I have no horse in this race. It's, it's not as though my wife or my children are in desperate need of kidneys at this point. I got into this mainly because it's the, the real test for being an academic in some sense is to figure out the way um, you want to organize markets with very complex goods and services that don't seem to render themselves amenable to being sold at checkout lines in hmm. supermarkets. I think the answer is it is harder to organize a market for organs than it is to organize a market for wheat, precisely because organs aren't commodities. But by the same logic, you know, we've organized markets for marriage, even yeah. though they're not commodities. Either. Yeah, we, we, markets tend to organize themselves. That's yeah. the marvelous thing about them, if, if you leave them alone. Yeah, that's right. Is, um, if, yes, I mean, if you leave them alone, or better, if you actually know what's going on and, and participate in them. Is that there, is, um, what happens is you don't want people from the outside saying why the hell it can't work, which is one of the reasons why I disagreed so strongly with Atul Gawand in his comments eight years ago. But rather what you really want to do is to have the people who say it hasn't worked well yet come up with a better way to make right. it go. Make it perfect. Make yeah, it I perfect. mean, we never make things perfect, but we make them better. I mean, look, you know, it's, it's basically the reason why Ronald Coase got a Nobel Prize can be summarized in one sentence, which is there are always gains from trade, which you want, and there's always frictions called transactions, of course, which make those gains unattainable. And when the gains from trade are smaller than the frictions, the transactions don't happen. But if you could lower the frictions, you will essentially increase the probability that useful transactions will take place. And the trick in all of these situations is to find ways in which you make the process for getting organs reliable on the one hand, but not so costly on the other hand, is to drive everybody else away. 
Well, we're almost out of time. I want to raise one last question. Sure. I want to take the, uh, the so-called uh, commodification of the body and uh, turn it around. Normally, uh, I would not argue that the fact that a policy saves lives is enough for it to be made uh, uh, legislation. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the uh, proponents of mandatory, mandatory seat belts or helmet laws will tell you that, that these laws save lives. And my view is is that they may save lives, but they restrict liberty, and I prefer a world where people uh, take responsibility for their own actions. Yeah, I mean, look, In- the seatbelt case is very complicated, and let me explain why. First of all, to some extent, the concern is not whether you live or die, but it's two other things. One, if you don't wear a seatbelt and you're on a highway, which is a common facility with other individuals, you not only increase your own risk, but you reduce the liberty of other individuals by increasing their potential liability. A little bit. And so some people say you don't have to wear a seatbelt, but treat it as contributory negligence. That's one possibility. And the second feature, of course, with seatbelts is it ties in most unfortunately to our system of subsidized medicine. Correct. Where if you don't wear a seatbelt, everybody else has to pay for the consequences of the accident. But uh, I find that argument uncompelling. Um, Russ, ask yourself if you owned a system of voluntary highways and you charge admissions to all your folks, would you have run a better product if, in fact, you had a seatbelt rule than if you didn't? Perhaps. And, and that, so treat the government as running that voluntary highway system, and the answer is correct. It's perhaps. We don't really know for sure. But we'd certainly want to make adjustments on the liability side and on the subsidy side. But we're not running a common network in these cases. This is not, the government doesn't have any hold of you by wanting to use facilities that it and only it can create, that is the highway system. This is a case in which you don't need the infrastructure in that particular fashion. No, I know. No, I'm asking a philosophical question. Yeah. It, it, let, me, let me try to restate it. Okay. In the case of seatbelts, the fact that seatbelts li- save lives is not enough for me to argue that the state should be uh, in, use its authority to restrict uh, freedom and, and, and similarly reduce responsibility. Mm-hmm. In this case, the argument you've made, which I find totally compelling, is that a market for kidneys would save lives, and more than save lives, it would also improve the quality of life for, for thousands and thousands of people. Mm-hmm. But we wouldn't, for example, want to argue – I wouldn't argue, and I, I don't think you would – that therefore we should force people to give their kidneys. Oh, God, no. So the question is, is there anything uh, – is there a freedom issue here or a liberty issue or values issue of a different kind that a person should have the right to commodify, so to speak – his or her body, oh, if absolutely. he or she so I mean, desires. I mean, look, let me put it to you the following way. The argument that you are making could be as follows. Normally, any voluntary exchange between two parties improves their joint welfare and presumptively ought to be respected. So now the burden is on third persons to explain why it is they're going to block those transactions. And if all you can show is that you reduce suffering and increase the supply of organs, and essentially create a healthier and more vibrant society, that doesn't seem like a very powerful reason <laughs> for blocking voluntary donations. The seatbelt case is different. I agree. Now the issue is I run this highway system, and I'm a monopolist. What conditions may I, as a monopolist, impose upon people who want to come on that situation? Surely it's a loss of liberty to say that you have to stop at a stop sign or a red light, and yet everybody says, oh, my God, the gains across system-wide are so much greater. Query are seatbelts like red lights, or are they just imposition? And there's no doubt, and this is a huge area, Russ. For example, one of the famous people questions we've often asked when we teach con law is, all right, the state owns the highway. Can it say the only people who are allowed to use the highway are those who vote Republican? 
those who give up their rights to criticize the president, those who accept all sorts of unreasonable searches and seizures? And generally speaking, the answer to all those questions is no, because there's always a real nervousness about dealing with monopolists, particularly state monopolists. Sure. But you don't have any of that problem here. If you want to talk about it by definition of decentralized market, one person at most has one kidney to give, right? Sure. I mean, you're not going to have the concentration issues and the monopoly power issues that lurk behind the seatbelt example, and which make it actually a very tricky case even for a libertarian. Because libertarians, as you know, always have trouble with common carriers and state monopolies. They don't like them, and they can't do without them, like anybody else. Coming back to kidneys, uh, is there any uh, prospect, do you know offhand, if there's any prospect of uh, an artificial kidney down the road? Oh, people have talked about that. The dialysis is an artificial kidney, and that, that stinks, um, and will be made better but never good. There is a, a movement to try to create what they call xenotransplants, which is to figure out how you can use genetic engineering to make pigs into laboratories that will create kidneys that are compatible with human beings. And I think the answer is 10 years ago, we thought it was 10 years ago away. Now we think it's 15 years away or 20 years away. Um, I have not heard anybody who's really good at this stuff uh, think that those methods at present will be a viable source of kidneys. Well, if you could but buy if they st- ever came up that you know pigs could back you know create kidneys, by God, this problem would be solved in an hour. Right? And the incentive to find that solution is going to come. The incentive is going to be larger if uh, people can sell those kidneys on an open market. Uh, oh well, the I don't situation. think any ethical objection to selling pigs' kidneys if you could breed them. So I think that incentive is there. I think it just turns out technically to be a much more difficult problem than anybody had expected. Um, uh, I got involved just as an academic in the organ thing probably around 1990 or so and talked to xenotransplantation were rife then. They're actually less frequent now than they were 15 years ago. And my last conversation with several nephrologists is that they were despairing of that as a short-term fix. I mean, there clearly will be visionaries who will work on that and all more power to them. And it's not only that. Remember, we've only talked about kidneys. When you're talking about pancreas and hearts and lethal transplants, you're not going to find a voluntary market emerging those things, right? What's the point of taking your own heart out for a 10% chance of saving somebody else's life or a 20% chance of doing it? But if you could get a pig's heart that you could transplant into a human being, uh, that market would transform itself. Of course, the question will eventually be whether those pigs are going to have the right to um, – they'll have to sign some sort of waiver, I'm sure, if we ever could generate that market, as as some people will speak up on behalf of the pigs to be used as commodities. Oh, I mean, there is an animal rights movement, which I've actually opposed on a whole variety of issues having to do with medical research. I think the answer is if you actually could show this, uh, that movement would be absolutely blown out of the water by people desperate to find organs for their loved ones. No doubt. Um, I do not believe they could survive. Um, I just don't. I mean, they can't stop the use of meat in homes, although they would dearly like They're working it. on it. Uh, they're working on it, but they're not having any success. Uh, uh, in fact, the, there are many people who become vegans and vegetarians, to which is, I would say God bless them. Yep, Autonomous choices. Let them do this. Sure. But I think that it's only a tiny fringe that are prepared to blow up uh, various kinds of facilities in order to stop it. The real fierce stuff is against medical research. Yeah. And uh, kidney harvesting from pigs would not be that. Richard, that thank you. On primates, by the way. Richard, thank you for an utterly fascinating sure. discussion and um, appreciate your time. Okay. Take care, Rob. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.